Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly filling in for Glenn Mack now today alongside Ray Didinger. And Ray, you know, you look at this 2022 Hall of Fame class, obviously, you know, very special with Dick Vermeil getting in, as you mentioned, other connections locally as well with uh, Art McNally and Sam Mills. But what are your overall takeaways, you know, uh, from this class and and some of the guys that got in uh, when you view who's getting in this year. Yeah, a little it's um it's interesting because it's not what you would call a big glamour class. You know, it's a lot of defensive players, linemen. Um there's only one quote unquote skill position guy and that's Cliff Branch who's the old timer who gets in as a wide receiver. Uh but you got Tony Pasali who's an offensive lineman, you got Leroy Butler who's a safety. Uh, Richard Seymour, defensive lineman, Brian Young, a defensive lineman, Sam Mills, a linebacker. You know, it's, those are kind of the grunts. It's kind of a grunt class. Uh, but that's okay. Yeah. Nice to see them getting some love for, for once in a while. Yeah. I mean, there's no quarterbacks, there's no running backs, there's none of those guys, but these guys are all really good players. I was, um, you know, it's, it's funny. People often uh, say you were a hall of fame voter, right? And I say, yeah. And how long? I have 15 years. Ah, that must be great. And I said, well, it is and it isn't. Um, because it's, you feel good that you're part of the process and that you have some say in it. Um, but people don't understand how hard it is to say no to great players. And that's part of the job too. I mean, you're putting guys in the hall of fame, which is great. Uh, but you're also saying to other guys, no, you know, not this year. Um, and I don't know if it affected the other guys at the table, but it sure affected me, you know, that every year, I mean, you're, you're casting a vote about a great player, you know, a guy who was a, a great football player, and you're going to, and you're casting a vote that's going to break his heart, you know, and that, that was hard to me. I mean, that was always really hard for me. Um, but on years when somebody that you really know or somebody that you covered or somebody you were close to and you really felt was deserving, when you see them go in, you just feel good because you know what it means. Um, and especially a guy like Dick, who I, I was hoping above hope that he would get in, and now he does. You know, and Sam Mills, who to me I thought was was just a great football player, but I always thought was a little overrated, was a little underrated, and was going to be one of those guys that was just kind of going to be on the cusp of, oh, he's really close, but he's not quite there. That finally he's going to get in the Hall of Fame, which he he clearly deserves. I mean, Sam Mills is, you know, I mean he's five eight and a half, and but he's one of the best linebackers I ever saw. I mean he was, I mean he was that good. I, I remember seeing in a USFL. When the Philadelphia Stars played the Jersey Generals, uh, and the Generals had Herschel Walker, who was built like a tank and could run like a Ferrari, ran out of the I formation. They threw a deep pitch, and Herschel turned, tried to turn left end, and he had his pads square to the line of scrimmage, and he was he was shifted into high gear. And Sam Mills came up, and Sam Mills hit Herschel Walker and knocked him backwards. <laughs> That's what I said. This this little guy's a special player. Yeah, I mean, there aren't too many people that could stop Herschel in his tracks, much less knock him backwards. But Sam Mills did that. And he did that to more than just one guy. I mean, he did that through a career. And he was, you know, I'm glad that finally somebody just took a good hard look at him and just said, you know what? Yeah, I know he was too small. You know, I know he didn't win a Super Bowl. You know, I know he has that USFL stamp on him. But a great player is a great player. And they belong in the Hall of Fame. And now Sam is finally going to get there. That's awesome. And Ray, I'm curious as to how you weighed some of those things as a voter, because, you know, I heard Mike Lombardi on with the morning show on Friday and, and they're talking about Coach Vermeil and the winning percentage and stuff like that. And 
Mike Lombardi kind of wants it more stats based, but I don't know. I feel like that doesn't really tell the story of like what situation a guy came into and, and their true impact on the game. So how would you weigh kind of stats versus, you know, overall impact on the game? Well, the stats are part of it, but the idea that you kind of have to reach a certain statistical standard to even be considered is to me wrong. Um, because no, no two coaches inherit the same situation. Everybody steps into a different situation. You would assume that a new coach is hired, comes into a team. Well, it's probably the team is looking to rebuild. You know, the other coach got fired for a reason. But some situations have more hope to them than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at Dick's career record, Dick's career record, 126 wins, 114 losses, 525 winning percentage. Um, you have to put that in the context of what he took over. In Philadelphia, he took over a really bad team in 1976 and a team that had been stripped of its draft picks, as I was talking about. He didn't have any picks in 76, 77, 78, didn't have a number one until 79. So he inherits a bad team, and he doesn't have the draft picks to begin to rebuild that. And yet, by the time he got to 79, he had the team going to the championship game, and then 1980, they go to the Super Bowl. He was able to rebuild this entire franchise with basically no resources. He did it with... You know, Gilbert Montgomery, a sixth-round pick. Charlie Johnson, a sixth-round pick. Carl Harrison, an eighth-round pick. I mean, he found these guys and brought them together and molded them into a team that was able to get to a Super Bowl. Then he he retires. He's out of the game for 14 years and then comes back and takes over a Rams team that, if anything, was worse than where the Eagles were mm-hmm. and in three years gets into a Super Bowl and wins it and does it with two very different styles. Like I was saying to you, I mean, he was really a run-based coach. With the when he was with the Eagles, I mean that offense really ran around Wilbert Montgomery. I mean he was it. I mean Ronnie Jaworski did a really good job, and Harold Carmichael was a great receiver. But they were a team that fundamentally ran the football. I mean Dick wanted to control the clock, not turn it over. Uh, you know he Dick's idea was winning every game, seventeen to fourteen. That was his kind of football. Um, when he came back with the Rams, I mean he had a whole different style because he realized, hey man, I have I have some real weapons here. You know I got Kurt Warner, I got Torrey Holt, I got Isaac Bruce, I got you know. You know, I, hey, let's throw it. And so he came out, drew up a whole different offense, and they won it that way. So, I mean, that's kind of the definition of great coaching to me, is making the best out of what you have. And he took two situations that most people would have regarded as absolutely hopeless and took those teams to Super Bowl. So the 525 winning percentage is very misleading. I mean, what you got to look at is the achievement. And the achievement is what he built with those teams, two Super Bowl teams that came from nowhere. Yeah, no doubt. And hey, what I remember most for is for the is with those Rams teams. And at the time, you didn't see a lot of teams playing like that. You know, it was still it was kind of transitioning to more of a passing league. But you see the explosiveness of that offense. And I thought the way uh, the way that they really utilized Marshall Falk in different ways. Like I, I feel like you didn't see teams use running backs in that kind of versatile manner before those Rams teams as much. Right. Well, part of it was there weren't many running backs that had that ability. Well, true. You know that I mean there weren't that many there aren't that many Marshall Falks that have the ability to line up as a as a true running back and then on the next play line up as a true wide receiver. Um, Brian Westbrook was like that. Yeah. Brian Westbrook was really like that. I, I remember, you know, Andy Talley when he was coaching Brian Westbrook at Villanova said, you know. I have Marshall Falk playing for me out here. And I kind of thought, oh, yeah, right, sure. You got Marshall Falk's playing out of the main line. Yeah, right, he's playing at Villanova. 
And then I went and I saw him. I said, oh, my God, I think he is. I mean, but that kind of particular skills, that kind of versatility you don't see very often. But, yeah, I mean, Marshall Falk was a perfect fit in that offense. You put him out on that field with those receivers and a quarterback that can sling the ball like Kurt Warner, <laughs> you could score on anybody. No doubt. They're a fun team to watch. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. Let's go to Michael in Lower Glenwood. What's up, Michael? Sounds good. Hey, how you doing? Hello, Mike. Hey, I wanted to ask you guys about I – know, I know the main focus probably for a lot of people is defensive end and linebacker. For me, really, it's finding the second receiver. I don't know if it's in the draft because besides, you know, our main guy we got last year, Devontae, we really haven't had success with that. And I don't want to pay a lot of money. So I'm really thinking – I want to know your guys' thoughts on Gallup. I think coming off the injury, I've always thought he had something. And then I'd also like to get your thoughts on uh, safety. Obviously, I grew up with Brian Dawkins. And then the way we got Malcolm, you know, we didn't get the top free agent uh, that year, which I think was Bird, kind of settled for Malcolm, and it worked out great. I think think that's a piece we need. We need a stud safety. I want to love to hear what you guys think. Um. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I think that you need a. I think you need a, a safety that can come in. I, I don't know if McLeod's coming back. McLeod's been a good player, and he's you know was part of the Super Bowl team and helped you there. Um, I just think you kind of need to upgrade there too. Um, as far as Gallup, you know, I, I think I, I agree with you in that I would sooner go for a veteran receiver in that other spot than try and draft and bring in another rookie opposite Smith. I don't know if Gallup's the guy I'd be thinking of. You know, I, I would look for Gallup to me is is a lot like Smith. I mean, he's more of a speed, he's more of a smaller, speedy kind of receiver. I'd like the guy on the other side to be more of a a, a bigger body possession kind of receiver. Uh, and you know, I I was, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what what Chris Godwin's position is or his situation is in Tampa now. You know, with Brady stepping down and Gronkowski probably going, they might, you know, they might be sort of breaking up that team a little bit. And, you know, maybe he would be inclined to move on. If Brady had come back, I think he probably would have come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe now he's more receptive to exploring the free agent market. You've got to worry about his knee injury. He's coming off a knee injury. And it was late in the year. It was December. So, you know, when is he going to be available to you? But, boy, he's a good player. It's interesting, Ray, because you, you talk about, you know, the first round kind of sets up nicely for the Eagles in terms of defensive players. If they do want to go the route of free agency for receivers, this year kind of works out for them as well because there are a lot of good ones out there. And, you know, you look at Godwin, uh, Mike Williams from the Chargers. And, you know, if you're talking about a, a possession receiver, what do you think of a guy like like Allen Robinson from the Bears? Do you think he might be a fit? Uh, I would need to do my homework because he had such a bad year this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I need to figure out exactly what happened. I'm, look, the quarterback situation in Chicago is pretty bad, and that would impact any receiver. But I, I want to. I want to do my homework on him. I I really liked him coming out of college, uh, and he certainly had a couple of other good years in in Chicago. This was not one of them. Uh, but he's he's certainly a guy I was thinking of. I, I mean, he's he's one of these guys I would I would certainly be thinking of. And Mike Williams is 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 kind of the bigger receiver we're talking about. But they need to get that other guy. I think they've got. I think they've certainly got one in Smith. I mean, Devontae Smith is is really really good and is going to be good and he's just going to continue to get better. But you need that guy on the other side. No doubt about it. Let's go to Malik in Mount Airy. What's up, Malik? Not much. I'm I'm pretty happy that uh, Dick Vermeil gets into the the hall because before the Super Bowl where we won, 
Dick Ramel was the coach who beat the Cowboys in the NFC Championship at, at the vet. And to be honest with you, that was a highlight of my life up until <laughs> that, that, that day was like, wow. But I also understood everything it took to get there. I wasn't old enough to understand that the Eagles, I just knew the Eagles won. I was at the vet. I was there. I had no idea, you know, okay, you got to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, to get there. I just knew, hey, you know, my dad was telling me, we going to the Super Bowl. So I'm thinking, all right, we going to the Super Bowl. I have no idea what it went, what it took until I got older. And 2000, when we went against uh, the Patriots the first time, I was like, oh, this is what it takes. It's not easy. I thought, you know, this is, well, okay, this is what we do every year. Nah, it's not that easy. But when we won, I really understood the pain that we had been through all the way up to poisoning that Lombardi Trophy. That for me, I look back at every. Now I, I understand just how valuable that head coach was because, from my understanding, like like Ray, you said it, the Eagles were horrible. But you know, as a kid, every one we got, you know, I would cheer because hey, my dad's cheering. Now, I'm happy that my dad's cheering. But you don't understand how hard that how, how horrible it was before '76 to be an Eagles fan. And going to the stadium and knowing you're going to lose almost every week, and when you win, it's like, wow, we won. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was pretty bleak, Malik. How uh, how 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 old were how old were you in nineteen how in nineteen eighty? Because you sound like a young guy I was, now. I am. I was of uh, three going on four. Uh, I understood, like I understood that we were in the Super Bowl because my brother always caught, kept kept me understanding because he was old enough to understand both sides of what was happening. My father, we would always watch the game when we would have the opportunity to. So I, I would always, I always knew. I watched it after I was old enough to understand what was going on. I was there. I just knew my dad was cheering, my brother was cheering. It was cold. <laughs> oh, it was cold. But, Trust me on that. It was cold. <laughs> but it, I, I understand, and I thank him because one thing, any Eagles fan will say to beat the Cowboys at home. And the NFC Championship was the greatest thing we had seen up until that point. I don't care what they say until we won the Super Bowl. People, people will forget that easily because we went to another um, uh, Super Bowl. But that game, it, uh, beating the Atlanta Falcons, yeah. But you were talking about you were beating Danny White and the Cowboys and Ed Tutal Jones in the vet. Listen, that, that game, listen, the, the, the vet exploded when we beat them. There's no question. There, there's no, there's no question about it. That was up until the Super Bowl. Up until the Super Bowl, they won. Up until Super Bowl Fifty Two, the one where they beat the Patriots in Minnesota. Um, I was at. I was pretty much at every Eagles game for better part of fifty years. And the biggest win prior to that was the win at the Vet against the Cowboys that sent them to their first Super Bowl. That was. Uh, that was anybody that was there or anybody that was an earshot of the Vet <laughs> knows. Uh, what what the what was going on in the city that day? That was uh that was a day that nobody's going to forget. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard a lot of stories about it. Now, I can't, I just can't imagine not being alive for it. Like the buildup for an Eagles Cowboys NFC Championship game, it just I can't imagine anything coming close to that. No, um, it wasn't. Um, I. The, the Eagles that week, the weather was so brutally cold in Philadelphia that week that the, the, the Vermeil took the team down to Tampa, and they practiced. They moved. They went down to Tampa, 
so that they could actually have good practices because they didn't have a bubble then. They didn't have an indoor facility, so they had to practice outside. And you just couldn't practice. It was just too cold and too windy. So Dick took the whole team down to Florida so they could get a week of good preparation. And I went to Dallas. I spent that week in Dallas with the Cowboys, just watching them prepare. Um, and I was in the office of Tech Schramm, the, the president of the Cowboys. I was in his office interviewing him when his secretary, Suzanne Mitchell, I still remember her name, brought in the... Uh, the wire from the league office telling him that the, uh, that the Eagles were going to wear their white jerseys in the championship game, which would then force the Cowboys to wear their blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I, I don't think they, I don't think the superstition thing still exists, but back then it was a very real thing. The Cowboys thought that the blue jerseys were bad luck and the Eagles had worn their green at home all year. And so if the Cowboys expected they would come in and wear their white, which they preferred. And the Eagles said, well, listen, we're the home team. We can, we can decide this. So the Eagles said, no, we're going to wear our white. And they made the Cowboys wear the blue. And I was there when she handed him the wire from the league office that said, oh, and by the way, uh, bring your blue jerseys. <laughs> That's great. Oh, boy, did he say, oh, he was so mad. Oh, his, face, <laughs> his face turned turned as, as red as that light bulb. <laughs> That's great. That was, the, that was the first blow that the Eagles struck in winning that championship game. Gamesmanship, no doubt about it. Very well played by General Manager Jim Murray. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. We'll get back to the phones. Uh, and also want to get some of Ray's thoughts on the Super Bowl last week. Um, entertaining game between the Rams and Bengals, but does end uh, with a little bit of, of controversy. So we'll get to that when we return. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dinger right here on Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP, Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dittinger, 215-592-9494, if you want to get in. Uh, but real quick before we get back to the phones, Ray, I wanted to get uh, some of your thoughts on the Super Bowl last week. Is uh, The Rams end up winning 23-20. I would say a pretty a pretty entertaining game uh, down the stretch. Defenses definitely took over in the second half. But you know your thoughts on the way the Rams have kind of gone about building that roster because it's not really conventional in terms of building through the draft and they've kind of gone with this alternate approach of, Hey, we don't care as much about our draft picks and we're going to, we're going to go and, and try to get established players. We can get them. Well, um, it's a good point. Cause I was thinking about that. Uh, and it's not just the Rams. This is two years in a row. This is two years in a row. Now teams have won with a, we're going for it approach, which is sort of counter to what conventional NFL wisdom has been for decades. Now it's been, you know, build through the draft, draft young players, build a foundation, you know, take the long view. Don't, you know, worry about the salary cap. Be careful how you spend your money. Uh, and that's been the way the teams have, have been built for like the last 20 years. Um, and now, you know, last year you had the Tampa Bay Bucks come in and they just say, you know, they, they signed Tom Brady. You know, they bring Rob Gronkowski out of retirement. They, um, they sign Antonio Brown, who they know is that that's certainly not a long-term investment, but okay, let's bring him in. You know, Leonard Fournette is out on the street. Let's bring him in. Uh, and Bruce Arians just basically says, you know, hey, I'm 70 years old. I don't have a whole lot of time. I want to win it right now. And they did. You know, and then this year you had the Rams who clearly were going for it. You know, make the trade for Von Miller, make the huge trade for Jalen Ramsey. You know, this year they sign Odell Beckham Jr. He's kind of this year's Antonio Brown. Mm-hmm. You know, wide receiver and all kinds of trouble, bad actor, bad in the locker room. No, no, no. We need a receiver. Let's go get him. 
They pay a huge price to bring in Matthew Stafford to upgrade at the quarterback position, and they win the Super Bowl. So this is two years in a row that you've had teams that have really departed from the gradual slow build kind of thing and really just adopted it. No, you know what? Now we're going for it right now and won that way. And I, I wonder, you know, will other teams now begin to adopt that idea? You know, will other teams say, you know, let's, let's spend the money. Let's not worry about the salary cap that much. Let's trade the draft picks. Let's bring in the veteran player, and let's make our best chance to go and, and win it this year. This is two years in a row the teams have done that and succeeded that way. And I just wonder if it's going to sort of upend what has been conventional thinking in the NFL for the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, and, I mean, with the Eagles at the spot they're in, with the draft picks they have – do you think that's a model that they should consider following, or do you think they're still too far away at that point to kind of sacrifice? Like yeah, that? I think if you're going to do this, you have to really know what you have in house before you say, "Okay, we're going to go for the quarterback. We're going to go for the. We're going to pick up these three or four guys, and we're going to spend the draft picks and we're going to spend the money because I think our team, the rest of our team, is good enough that if we get these guys, these guys will get us over the hump. Mm -hmm. I think that's the decision that the Bucks made and they won with it. And I certainly think that's the decision that the Rams made, and they won with it. Um, it. It would be disastrous if you had a middling kind of team and you took this approach and made your run and fell short. Now you have no present and no future. You know, that's kind of what the Eagles did pre-Vermeil. Right. You know, the coach, the coach, the previous coach was Mike McCormick, who came in and had been an assistant coach under George Allen in Washington. And that was when they, George Allen's motto was, the future is now. And so he traded all of his draft choices and brought in all these veteran players uh, and immediately turned the Washington team around, got them right to the playoffs, got them to a Super Bowl. And Mike was on that staff. And so when he came to Philadelphia, he tried to do the same thing. But he didn't have as good a core group to build around. So he brought in Roman Gabriel and he brought in Bill Berge. He brought in some good players, but he didn't have enough other good players in-house to make it work. And that's how the Eagles wound up in the situation they were in when Vermeil came in, which is really rock. I mean, that's not just rock bottom. Now you're below rock bottom. You got to you got to make sure that you have the rest of those pieces before you invest into two or three that are going to get you over the hump. Yeah. And uh, another part of that, Ray, and we were talking about impact defensive players earlier. I'm just curious, in your opinion, you've seen uh, so many players over the course of, of your uh, football watching life and career. Where does Aaron Donald stack up with some of the best defensive players of all time? Because, I mean, I, I can't remember a lot of guys that impact the game the way that he does. No, he's a great one. I mean, he's a great one. When you talk about the best defensive players I've seen, yeah, he's, he's there. I mean, he's in the top half dozen. Um, you know, Angelo, when I was on with Angelo, the morning after the game, you know, he asked me, is, is Aaron Donald the best defensive lineman I've ever seen? Um, and, you know, to me... You should never ask me those questions because I get, you know, I, I get real, you know, technical about it. Right. And I said, well, you can't compare defensive ends and defensive tackles. They really are very different positions. I mean, the blocking they face and everything, their responsibilities are different. I mean, they're playing defensive line, but their end and tackle are two really different animals. Um, so I said, I'll just, I'll just talk about defensive tackle. And no, I, you know, I, I will still say the best defensive tackle I've ever seen was Mean Joe Green with the, with the Steelers in the 70s. Mm -hmm. He was... He was the best. I've never seen anybody that could dominate a game the way he could dominate a game. I mean, every and Aaron Donald does. In this era, Aaron Donald is a dominant player, but not to the degree that Joe was. Uh, so, uh, but as if you talk about the top half dozen defensive players I've seen, 
Aaron Donald's in that discussion. I mean, Lawrence Taylor's in there. You know, Reggie White is in there. Uh, I would say Bob Lilly is in there. Joe Green, for sure. Um, I mean, those guys, um, Ray Lewis, you know, those kinds of guys are, are all in there. But in, in this era of football, Aaron Donald is special and unique because he plays every play. I mean, he, he pretty much, in an era when even the great players kind of rotate and stay fresh and all that stuff, that this guy only, I mean, he only, he only came out of the Super Bowl for a handful of plays. Yeah. I mean, he played pretty much the whole game, and he did that all during the season. Yeah, and you look at the final two plays, he's still fresh enough to, to you know, get the big run stop on third and one and then get after Burrow on fourth down, and, I mean, that really sealed the game for the Rams. Yeah, he's, he, is, he, is a, he is a truly, truly great player. And I, I know there was some talk. And he had said during the week that if we win, maybe I'm going to retire. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, he's still, I mean, he's still 30, which is not young by football standards, but certainly not old. Uh, and you watched him play this year. I mean, he was as good as he ever was. And interesting thing about Aaron Donald, when he was coming out of pit and he's coming into the draft, there were not just a couple, but a lot of NFL general managers, scouts, and all that said, because I loved him. I saw him play pit, and I said, this guy's going to be great. And the guy said to me, he's too small. He's too small. I, I, are you crazy? Yeah. Are you guys out of your mind? Do you even, I mean, I know you put a tape measure up, and I know you see what his height is, and I know what, what your prototype is, and okay, it's taller than that. But did you ever watch him play? Did you ever see the way this guy dominates games? Did you ever see the way he takes games over in the fourth quarter? You know, it's, it just drives me crazy that they, that they that guys just, can look at a player like Aaron Donald and say, eh, nah, too small. Yeah, and it, it's not like these things don't matter, but I agree. So many times I think these organizations get so wrapped up in the measurables, and it's like, in the end, can the guy play or not? And, like, I hate to give the Cowboys credit, but I think that's something they do in the draft very well is, you know, they don't kind of force positions where two years in a row, like, I, I CD Lamb wasn't necessarily a need for them at the time, but he was kind of the best player, so they just took him. And last year with Parsons, you know, uh, they – may have had bigger needs but they just took the best player yeah and we had it that we had it this year with the senior bowl uh kenny pickett from again from Pitt, who's clearly the best quarterback in his crop i mean there's i mean he's not a super duper but i mean he's the best quarterback in his crop mm. um the, the scouts were all a twitter that oh, his hands are too small you know they met they measured they measured his hands and his hands are too small and i said jeez you, you know who the last quarterback that went to the senior bowl and everybody was talking about his hands were too small who was that Joe Burrow. Oh, well, that's worked out pretty well for them. We were having the same discussion about Joe Burrow's hand size two years ago when he was coming out of LSU. And I was, and I, Byron was, all the guy does is win football games. Right. You know? Did you watch him play at LSU last year? I mean, did you watch that LSU offense? Did you watch him in the championship game? Do you see how tough he is? I mean, they're going to worry about his hand size. Well, the same thing happened with Kenny Pickett this year. That's one of the reasons why, I mean, I love the scouts and I love to talk about the draft. And to me, it's for, I, I love it. But sometimes they just drive me crazy. Yeah, <laughs> they, they overthink it sometimes. Oh, so much. Uh, 215-592-9494. Let's go to Bob in Florida. What's happening, Bob? Hey, Tom. Hey, Ray. How you doing today? Hello, Bob. Um, hey, Ray, I, I would just like to say that I, I, I bought a copy of your book early on, and uh, I loved it so much that I have two brothers that I actually bought copies for and sent them uh, gifts to. So, oh, thank uh, you. It was just tremendous. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book, was uh, and I won't give much away here as a spoiler alert, but it was you sitting across from Muhammad Ali at his training camp in the Poconos. Oh yeah, Deer Lake. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was really a cool story. Yeah, that's one but, I'll always remember. <laughs> yeah, I bet you will. I bet you will. 
Ray, you also did me a, a, a great turn. I was at the Philadelphia Park uh, for the races one afternoon, and I ran into Harry Callis and uh, Steve Van Buren with my youngest son, who had just finished playing a football game up in Northampton. <clears throat> and uh, I said, I pointed to Steve Van Buren, and I said, uh, and that, by the way, both those guys were so gracious to me and my son. And um, Steve, um, I said, that's your grandpa's favorite player right there, uh, one of the greatest running backs of all time. And Steve sat down and wrote a little note uh, to my father uh, and gave it to my, uh, to my son. You know, so my, my son got to come home from in the park that day and uh, you know, give his grandfather a note from Steve Van Buren. It was pretty cool. I called you. Um, I didn't call you, but I called NFL Films, and you answered the phone that week and, uh, and turned me on to some uh, film footage that was available through NFL Films uh, of Steve Van Buren from my dad. Oh, so nice. Yeah, we got him that for Christmas. Well, he's um, Steve Van Buren was uh, was a great was a great football player, obviously, but he was a, he was a, he was just a great individual. He's probably the most humble, probably the most humble superstar I've I've ever met. He he was a remarkable guy. He really was. It's funny. He was from the Grand Caymans, and so was my wife's father, from the same exact time, actually. So, uh, in- interesting uh, side note there. But um, the thing I wanted to talk about was. Uh, Carson Wentz uh, for just a minute, mm-hmm. and you know I don't know if you heard Ray, but uh, well, you you did a great interview um, with um, uh, I'm having a brain cramp here a second, but you did a great interview uh, with the Raiders quarterback, the kid from uh, Saint Cecilia. Oh, uh, um, Richie Gannon. Richie Gannon, yeah, and he was on with uh, John and Joe about a week or so ago, and he really did an unbelievable expose on uh, quarterbacks who come from less than Division One schools and their development curve, and he talked about himself, actually, uh, as well as a number of other guys. And, and, he, and he talked about the progression year to year in terms of the speed of the game uh, and then really understanding professional coverages and so on. It was really, it was, if you ever get a chance to go back and listen to that, I, I said, why isn't this guy like a coach in the NFL? You know, but it was really interesting. Yeah, Rich, um, Rich, could, Rich could. I mean, Rich's knowledge of the game is such, and he's been around the game long enough that – um, I think he. I think if he wanted to, I think if he wanted to, he could be a very good quarterback coach. I I could certainly see that. Yeah, he was really impressive. And you know, when I looked at Wentz in seventeen, you know, and and I really think that when Buffalo drafted Josh Allen, that's what they were hoping to get was Carson Wentz twenty seventeen. Um, and they're very similar players. I I think so. Oh yeah, um, I, I can. I, Bob, I could. It, I, I could certainly see that. I mean, he um, guys that were. They're almost exactly the same size uh, and a very similar skill set. Big, strong runners, uh, strong arms, um, n- need some refinement. Uh, their mechanics weren't the greatest. I think the small college thing had something to do with it. You know, Allen played at Wyoming. Um, and, but the thing is, Josh Allen really worked at it. I mean, he went, he went to those camps with Jordan Palmer. And you look at him, if you looked at, if you looked at Josh Allen's tape now, and you compared that to his tape as a rookie. He all, he looks like a totally different player. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching him in that playoff game in Houston where, you know, the 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 Bills had a lead in that game and Josh Allen the second half was just a total disaster and then you look at what's happened in the couple of years since and I, I kind of concerning as an Eagles fan because we were talking about it off the air where Brian Dable did a really good job of developing him and now he's with the Giants and he looks to be putting a pretty good staff together there. I I think the same thing. I look, you know, the Giants. One of the things that's helped the Eagles for the last few years is the Giants have been so bad. They have the least wins in the NFL over the last five years. They have been so bad. I, don't, I still don't know how the Eagles managed to lose one game to them this year, <laughs> but they have been so bad. I think they're getting it straight. 
I, I really do. I, I, I think that I think the general manager now, uh, I think Joe Shane is, is a is a smart guy uh, who will bring some order to the front office and help them in the draft where they've been terrible. Um, and I think Dable is a really good coach. Everyone speaks well of him. And you certainly look at what he's done in Buffalo. Uh, and they went out and they hired a terrific defensive coordinator, Wink Martindale. Um, and they brought Mike Rowe in to be the receiver coach. And you know, I know it didn't work out for him as an offensive coordinator, but the year he was the receivers coach here, he did wonders with Aguilar and, and uh, Alshon Jeffrey. So I, you know, look, I'm not trying to scare anybody, Eagles fans, but I mean, the Giants have been a joke of a team now for the better part of five, six years. I think they're. I think they're finally getting. Their, I think they got some people in there that might finally get it right. Yeah, no doubt. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. We'll get back to the phones when we return. I'm Tom Kelly filling in for Glenn Mack now, alongside Ray Dinger on this Sunday morning, right here on Sports Radio ninety four WIP. Sports Radio ninety four WIP. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now with Ray Dinger on this Sunday morning. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. If you want to get in, we still got a lot to get to in the 12 o'clock hour uh, as well. I'll get Ray's take on uh, well, how Doug is going to fare down in Jacksonville. Is, uh, you, are, are you <laughs> surprised, uh, Ray, that, uh, that Doug is back in the NFL, or do you expect him to kind of get a job this cycle? Oh, I did. Okay. I, I did. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, he could have gotten back in last year, not as a head coach, but he had offers to go as an offensive coordinator mm-hmm. and just decided – I really kind of think a year away would not be the worst thing. Um, I didn't realize until later on that, that there were some issues in his family. His his brother was uh, his brother was seriously ill and actually passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of his sons was getting married. The other son was they were having a he was going to have his first grandchild. So there's a lot of family stuff that he kind of wanted to be there for. Uh, the kinds of things that coaches miss out on, right? You know, he 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 just no. Let me take this year to, to with my family. But I I really felt like when he was ready to get back in the game, the opportunity was going to be there. And um, you know, I think Doug's a good coach. I really do. Uh, and I think you know he'll he'll learn from his first experience. Um, but the organization, the, that's such a backwards organization right now. The, the ownership is not particularly good. Uh, the general manager, Trent Balky, is a tough guy to work with. Who's, If he's really running the ship, some of his personnel decisions are sort of odd, to say the least. Uh, the owner seems impulsive and, um, uh, and easily influenced mm-hmm. by the fans, which is a scary proposition. You know, if... If the organization were more stable and had better leadership and better people at the top, I would feel better about Doug's chances. But the one thing he does have, and some people are questioning this now after the way he played this year, but I do believe he does have a quarterback. I think Trevor Lawrence is really a good quarterback. He needs better people around him. He needs better coaching than what he's had. But I still believe in what I saw in college. I think he has the talent to win in the NFL. So I think he has the quarterback, but he needs he needs better structure, uh, and better people in the organization to put the whole thing together. But Doug himself, I think Doug's a good coach. I really do think he did a good job here. And uh, I think given given an opportunity, I think he'll do well in Jacksonville. Yeah, definitely good to see him back in the NFL for sure. 215-592-9494. Let's go to Daryl in Malvern. What's up, Daryl? Good afternoon or good morning, gentlemen. You know, this Carson Wentz narrative it seems to me to be incomplete, and there's a couple points I'd like to bring up. First of all, before the start of the 17th season, I don't know if you guys recall, but he went out to work with 3DQB, and the Eagles were not at all pleased about it. 
but they kind of got swept under the rug given his performance of that season. A big looming question mark for me is why hasn't he returned since? That's number one. Number two, Ray, you chart everything. I would love to know what percentage of Carson Wentz's uh, completions in 17 uh, came of more than, say, 10 yards, 7 yards, came from broken plays, came from, you know, his athleticism. Because I, I really look at it and say that the game that he played in 17 was not sustainable. The DCs were going to get the book on him, figure out, keep him in the pocket, and force him to beat you with, uh, a conventional passing attack and making quality reads. And 17, I'm not saying he didn't do that, but he regressed. And I'm just curious, you know, taking these two things into consideration, do you think Carson Wentz got a little full of himself and just doesn't see his game for what it is? Well, um, that, was certainly, um, that was certainly talked about, was the idea that he became borderline uncoachable, uh, that he became rebellious, uh, that he didn't take the coaching, and it took and it took the attitude that you know I know better. Um, that was said. I mean that that was that that was sort of a narrative that that got some traction within the building down there. You know I don't know how true it is. Uh, I mean my my argument in that in that debate is I know a lot of quarterbacks are like that. You know quarterbacks kind of you know like I know what I'm doing. You know I, I know you know I if you send a play in that I don't like, I'm not going to run it. You know, if, if you send a play in that I don't like and I don't think it has a chance to succeed, I'm going to change it. That's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what audibling is all about. And sometimes when you want to give a quarterback that kind of responsibility, and the Eagles clearly wanted to establish that Carson Wentz was the leader of the team, and in 2017 he was obviously the leader of the team, then they kind of wanted to give him that power. Now, did he take it to extremes to the point where he became hard to coach? I don't know. You'd have to be on the inside to know that. But I do know that his – his mechanics just completely abandoned him. Um, they improved significantly in 2017, but after the injury and after the surgery, uh, he didn't have the same mobility. He didn't have the same ability to escape the rush and, and turn broken plays into big plays. And yet, in his mind, he thought he could. And he was trying to make plays that he once could make, but he couldn't make anymore. And the more he tried to do that, the more trouble he got into. I think that's kind of what happened. And then... When you get into that cycle, especially in the National Football League, um, then it just then it just accelerates and and it just gets worse and worse. And I, that's why I thought a fresh start in Indianapolis with a good team and a coach he knew and trusted would kind of get him back on track. And the fact that that didn't happen in Indianapolis this year, to be honest with you, Daryl, I don't know where he goes from here. I really don't. Well, there's two things I'd like to follow up on if you'd allow me. First of all, in his mechanics, I seem to recall coming out that there were a lot of questions about his footwork, about his release point, about uh, his time to release. And these things seemed to kind of get fixed, and then he didn't go back to them. So, again, it's kind of underscoring his coachability. And more importantly, though, to the overall game, not just Carson Wentz, but the NFL in general, this seems to happen more frequently that quarterbacks taken high in the draft, it's really a hit-or-miss proposition and there's a lot of money that gets tied up in the quarterbacks. Do you think that maybe the pendulum is going to swing a little bit and that you recognize get quarterbacks that have just sound fundamentals, quick releases, and surround them with great talent and don't go for this quote-unquote franchise mindset anymore? Um, Thanks, Yeah, I, 
I don't know. I think you just go for the. I think you just go for the best prospect. You know, you, there are guys like Joe Burrow. To me, they're. I mean, you look at Joe Burrow. If you saw him play at LSU, you said this guy's a franchise quarterback. I mean, sometimes you try and talk yourself into believing that the guy is, but he's really not. Like in this year's draft, like I like Kenny Pickett. I think Kenny Pickett's a good player, but I don't look at him and say, yeah, he's a franchise quarterback. With Joe Burrow, you kind of knew. He passed the eye test. Yeah, and and I think one thing, Ray, with the coachability that uh, it kind of encourages me about Jalen Hurts moving forward is like Jalen Hurts does not seem like that kind of guy who's going to be resistant to coaching. And, and like that moment where he comes off the field in the Washington game and Sirianni's giving it to him a little right. bit. I could, at him. Yeah, I, like I could not – like, I don't feel like that's something that Doug could have done to Carson, especially toward the end. I think that's important for a quarterback. Yeah, well, it's the, um, you know, he, he was a coach's son. I mean, he played for his father, and, and he grew up. He didn't get hollered at just on the field. He got hollered at the, at the, at the kitchen table, mm-hmm. you know, and so he understands hard coaching, and he can deal with it. And he said that after that game. He said, you know, uh, and, he, and he and Nick kind of laughed about it, but he said, no, I want to be coached hard because that's how I was raised. It's not a bad quality to have. Yeah, no doubt. 215-592-9494. Uh, we'll go back to the phones when we return. Also, I need to ask Ray's opinion on uh, one current Eagle and whether he uh, could be a Hall of Famer down the line. So we'll get to that when we return. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now with Ray Dinger, Sports Radio 94 WIP. 